for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Our God and Father, we thank you for the ministering spirits, our friends, the angels, who are glorious in might and power. Not all glorious, not all powerful, but greater in might and power than we are, who are full of wisdom from you and who are swift and eager to do your will. We thank you, Lord, that you have even commissioned these holy creatures to serve our spiritual interest. As we consider their ministry this morning, we pray, Lord, that our hearts will be encouraged that you are for us and you have even created wonderful creatures who are sent forth for us. Help us, teach us, instruct us by your Holy Spirit, even as we contemplate your servants, the angels. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Amen. Uh, just by way of orientation, this this question comes at the end of a chapter in which the writer to the Hebrews has been putting forth the ministry of Christ Jesus and the extraordinary character of it um, over against other servants. So the servant of the Lord uh, in Hebrews 1 that accomplishes our salvation is the Lord Jesus Christ. But we should also observe that he's not the only servant of the Lord who is interested in and laboring on behalf of your salvation. He's the only Savior, but there are others who minister to and promote the work of salvation. Certainly we see that uh, amongst ourselves. Pastor, pastors, elders, deacons, those who, those who, and fellow saints who minister God's grace to us or servants of the Lord for our spiritual encouragement, for building us up, for fortifying us. I simply want to remind us that it's not just God and humans, but sort of somewhere in the great scale of being between God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is overall and above all and in all. There are orders of creatures, man in the visible creation, the most extraordinary and outstanding, but above man and below God, these invisible servants of his, the holy angels, also serve his glory and work for our good. In fact, just a little bit of context here, um, and then we'll, then, we'll, then we'll kind of back up a little bit. He says, uh, of, he's speaking about how excellent of a name is given to the Son, and it's a name more excellent than the name given to the angels. The angels have been given great and glorious names, but none so glorious as this servant, his own son incarnate. For to which of the angels, verse 5, did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. There's a relationship that Christ has to the father that exceeds even that of the sons of God, which is a description sometimes given to the angels. But here's a capital S, son of God, who excels even the dazzling, as it were, sons of God, the angels. Verse 6 and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. This is interesting. Angels are worshipers. Angels don't worship men. Angels don't worship angels. Angels worship God. Sometimes men, holy angels worship God. Sometimes men forget to worship God and they direct their worship to an angel. Even good men. Revelation 19, Revelation 22, two times the Apostle John falls down at the feet of an angel to worship. And the angel says, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. Worship God. And the angels worship Christ. They recognize in Christ Jesus, true God, worthy of worship. And of the angels, he says, verse 7, who makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire, citing Psalm 104, um, that the angels are God's servants and they are jealous for his glory and they are swift and eager to do his will. They are servants of God sent forth from God for the sake of the elect who are swift and eager in their job. 
but they're not the Savior. But of the Son, he says, verse 8, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, your God, your God, has anointed you, this is the Father anointing the Son, with the oil of gladness, now listen to this, above your companions. Above your companions. Who are the companions of Christ Jesus? Uh, now, the context here is a royal um, psalm about a royal, a, a, a royal warrior um, taken from Psalm 45, um, uh, and this is citing verse 7, verses 6 and 7. But leading up to that, there's a warrior, a royal one, a king, who goes forth into the field of battle against God's enemies and the enemies of God's people, and the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of his kingdom, and he wins the battle. But here's the, here's the important point I want us to grasp as we think about the ministry of angels. He's not the only one engaged in the battle. Can we think of it like that? Is that a fair way of putting it? Christ is not the only servant of God who is waging war against the devil. In fact, in Roman, in Revelation 12, uh, verses, uh, we should just read it, verses 7 and following. He says, and there was war in heaven, and Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels, that is to say the angels that rebelled with him, waged war, and they, that is the, the dragon and his angels, were not strong enough, and there was no place found for them in, the he in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Who is battling the works of the devil in heaven? The holy angels are, with Michael as their captain. Um, who is battling the works of the devil on earth? Uh, we should be, right? We have great direction on that in Ephesians chapter 6, how to gird ourselves for battle because we wage war not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and principalities and the spirits of the air. Our, 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 spirit, our warfare is spiritual. But enlisted on our side of the battle are the holy angels. Christ is said to have come forth to destroy the works of the devil. And certainly Christ gains a victory by crushing the serpent's head with a, de with a decisiveness and an efficacy that no angel had ever achieved. You can almost imagine it like this. The angels, the holy angels, are absolutely um, incensed at the rebellion of their fellows who rebel against God and against his glory. They engage as swift and eager ministers of God's glory and holy presence in war against the unholy angels. They cast them out of heaven, and then we can read this in parts of the Old Testament. They follow them, as it were, down to earth and continue the battle on earth. And yet, none of them decisively destroys the works of the devil while they resist them and while they frustrate them. None of them ultimately destroys him. In the fullness of time, God sends forth his son. And his son came forth to destroy the works of the devil. And when he destroys the works of the devil... All the angels of God rejoice because this is their, Jesus' battle is their battle, but Jesus is the warrior who decisively wins the victory. And when he's anointed in his resurrection with the oil of joy, he is said to be anointed with the oil of joy, Psalm 45 says, above your fellows, uh, that's translated in Hebrews 1 is above your companions, they are seeing their victory of their war being achieved by the Savior who came, Christ Jesus. Then he then he speaks about um, Christ for a bit, and then back to verse 14. Are they not all ministering spirits, these are the companions of the fellows, sent forth to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? 
Christ is the most preeminent servant who achieves our salvation. But he's not the only servant of God from heaven working for our salvation. He's the only Savior, but the angels are sent forth to promote the well, the spiritual and even the material, physical well-being, and um, we'll talk about that in a moment, of God's people. Typically, when theologians talk about the ministry of angels, they distinguish between the extraordinary ministry and the ordinary ministry. The ordinary and proper habitation of an angel is heaven, where they behold the face of God and worship him. In fact, when you see scenes of heaven, it's always the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh Sabaoth, and the hosts are the hosts of angelic sort of courtiers who surround his throne crying, holy, 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 with an incessant kind of antiphonal praise. God is enthroned in the midst of the cherubim. When there's a kind of picturesque reproduction on earth of the heavenly court, and Moses is given instructions on how to make the tabernacle and how to adorn it, cherubim are all around in the decoration. In fact, I was just, I don't know if you've started your reading through the Bible in a year. I'm in those early chapters of the Pentateuch, early books of the Pentateuch right now, and there's a lot of detail near the end of Exodus on how to adorn the tabernacle. Uh, and all about the tapestries and the linen and the fine twisted linen and how many hooks to hang it with and where to place them. And it gets rather detailed, but as you go along, every once in a while it says, and make it with cherubim. Make it with cherubim. There's a cherub embroidered on the veil that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. But that's not the only cherub in there. There are two cherubs that are carved emblematically on top of the Ark of the Covenant who, as it were, face each other and, and jealously guard the holy presence of God with their, with their wings outstretched. Later on, there are very tall cherub that are carved floor to ceiling and their wings touch one wall and the other wall and each other in the middle so that if you walked into the Holy of Holies, it would be wall to wall, floor to ceiling, angelic hovering. God dwells in the midst of holy ones. His court is surrounded with holy creatures. This is the thing about the angels that makes them, among other things, that make them extraordinary. Um, these are creatures, but they're without sin. It's interesting. They worship God, but they're not saved because they never fell. They're not Christians, but they're creatures and they know him and they love him and they are enrolled in the Lamb's army and he is their object of worship. But they're not Christians in the sense of raised up from the dead together with Christ Jesus in his resurrection because they were never consigned to death. Moreover, Christ did not take to himself the nature of angels, but he took to himself the nature of men. He came to save men, not angels. But most of the angels needed no saving. Most of the angels needed no saving. They're uniquely qualified, even because of their spiritual character, not material in nature. They appear materially and under material forms in order to disclose themselves at certain times and places, but in themselves they are spirits. Scripture repeatedly refers to them as spirits, even though there are different visions of angels. Sometimes they appear um, as winged, sometimes with two wings, sometimes with six wings, sometimes with one face, sometimes with four faces. Uh, sometimes they appear just as a man. In fact, 
two of three who came to sit down at the Oaks of Mamre with Abraham and Sarah, Genesis 18, it, it describes them as three men. One is called Yahweh. This is a theophany. God's using a human form to communicate with Abraham. But the other two, we should probably call them angelophanies, also appear no differently than the other as men. And when they go down to Sodom uh, to warn Lot uh, and to bring wrath upon the city, in fact, we should just mention something about that. They didn't just go to get Lot, Lot out. They say in chapter 19 of Genesis that they came to bring destruction. They're not just there to rescue. They're also there to judge. That God, God commissions angels to administer judgment and also to be the created means of rescue. They're there to help, but they're also there to judge. With regard to the extraordinary ministry, we can I, I give a summary. This from Herman Bobbink. It's a longish paragraph, but bear with it. I, get, I think he gives a nice overview of what angels do, particularly in the Old Testament. He says, first, we see the angels play a role in guarding Eden, right? That Adam and Eve were supposed to keep and guard the keep, cultivate and guard the garden. They failed. They were kicked out of that holy precinct. Who should guard the holy precinct after the holy guardian was kicked out? I like to say, why not the angels? They were doing such a good job in heaven. These holy angels who are jealous for God's celestial habitation are then commissioned to come and guard his terrestrial habitation after mankind had abdicated his responsibility. And there are stationed at the end of Genesis 3, cherubim with a flaming sword guarding the way to the tree of life because this is what holy angels do so well. They are jealous, swift, efficient guardians of God's holiness. I'll, I'll interrupt Bobbink a few times as, as, I, as I please, but back to Bobbink. He says, but then they appear to convey revelations acting according to bless or to punish in the history of the patriarchs and prophets throughout the entire Old Testament. They appear to Abraham, Genesis 18, to Lot and his family, Genesis 19, to Jacob uh, on a couple of different occasions. They function in the giving of the law. In fact, we're told in Galatians 3 and in Acts 7 that the law was given to Moses by angels and that God appeared on the mountain in the midst of his holy ones. Yes, Moses went up on the mountain to meet with God, but it wasn't Moses and God alone who were on the top of that mountain together. In fact, we're told that God appeared in the midst of his holy ones so that he saw him as the Lord of hosts because he saw and encountered also the hosts. But then we're also told that the hosts were not simply idly standing by, as it were, silent attendants. You might think of the guards at Buckingham Palace um, sort of standing there, expressionless, silent, this is not what the angels are doing on the top of Mount Sinai. We're told in two places by both Stephen, just before he's martyred, and by the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, that they were actually there teaching Moses, telling Moses the law. Moses received the law from angels, which shouldn't surprise us. John received his revelation from an angelic messenger, a kind of angelic tour guide. The same thing is probably true of Ezekiel when he talks about the man who is giving him these apocalyptic visions of the new heaven and new earth at the end of uh, the prophecy of Ezekiel, that man is probably just another one of the holy angels, similar to the one who gave John his apocalyptic vision. Back to Bobbing. He says, they take part in Israel's war, uh, 2 Kings 19. They are more with us than are against us, and Elisha sees, and the, uh, and the eyes of his servant are open to see chariots and horses, um, often in the Old Testament, uh, angels are described as chariots. Um, in fact, there's one place where he describes the angels on the top of the Ark of the Covenant as chariots. That's the word used. When 
when Elijah is taken up into heaven by a chariot of fire, that is probably those are probably angels who are the escorts of saints into heaven. In the New Testament, it says that that um, uh, Lazarus was conveyed into heaven by an angelic escort. Um, they announced the counsel of God to Elijah, to Elisha, to Ezekiel, Daniel, and Zechariah. These are all explicit references of angels being means of communication. As if to prove they are not remnants of polytheism and do not belong to a prehistoric age, their extraordinary ministry even broadens in the days of the New Testament. They are present at the birth of Jesus. Bring you great news of great good news of great joy and they're also present at his temptation when there was no one else around him he had he had resisted the devil and who comes to comfort him in the wilderness jesus is in the wilderness but he's not there all alone after he faces the devil and prevails in that contest luke 4 matthew 4 we're told that angels came and minister to him uh, let us just say his fellow servants his companions his fellow warriors console him and encourage him in his incarnate state as he wages that war. Back to Bavik. The, the angels accompany him throughout his entire earthly ministry, and they appear especially at the time of his suffering. When the, when the, when the uh, apostles are falling asleep in the garden, there are other servants of God there with Christ that encourage him in his human nature. We're told that there are angels there that are consoling him. He could use the consolation of some friends as he faces this last and, and great uh, engagement, which is the cross, the cross by which he will finally destroy the works of the devil and dying and rising again. And as he sits there in great agony, contemplating the cup that he's about to drink, he could use the consolation of some friends, and the inner circle of apostles is sleeping. Here's the thing about the angels, though. We should just say this. They don't sleep. <laughs> they don't have bodies. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know how you are after turkey? It has a, there's a great old word for that. It has a soporific effect upon you. That is to say, tending to produce sleepiness. Well, you know what? I have to think that's got something to do with my body. Angels don't take naps. There's never like a place in the Bible where like, and then he, he, you know, he, you know, the angel woke up. This is not a, it's not a thing with angels. They're not subjected to the same limitations that we are and that in their extraordinary character, they come and they offer consolation to Christ at the very moment of his of his deep temptation, that deep agony of his, I mean, in the Garden of Gethsemane. At the resurrection, also, they are there. They are the ones who are in the I mean, who are the first witnesses to the resurrection? Angels are now the first human witness, Mary Magdalene, um, but the first created witness is not Mary Magdalene. The first created witness are holy angels, which they see both in the tomb and outside of the tomb. The, here's Christ and here's Christ come to destroy the works of the devil and the army is around. <laughs> the hosts are around. And at his ascension, Acts 1, he ascends. They are the ones who proclaimed his advent. They are the ones who consult him in the wilderness. They are the ones who consult him in the garden. They are the ones who witnesses, witness to his resurrection. They are also the ones who exegete his ascension. This Jesus whom you see will come again in like manner. Subsequently, they appear from time to time in the history of the apostles. And then, and, and then they cease their extraordinary ministry and will resume that public role at the return of Christ. Um, when he appears in glory, he will appear with a host of angels. 
when the trumpet is sounded, Christ will not blow it. Angels will. When they do battle against God's enemies, when they gather the elect, Matthew 24 says that the angels will gather the elect. Christ will save them and does save them and is their only savior. But the angels go and get them. The angels go and gather them up. And they cast the ungodly into fire, Matthew 13. The angels aren't just simply standing there watching God execute judgment. They are holy ministers engaged in the execution of the judgment. Sometimes in the Old Testament, this comes out very vividly. When God executes great vengeance upon a people, sometimes he uses human ministers. You remember after the uh, sin with the, uh, with the golden calf that, God, um, that Moses came and said, you know, who is for me? And a whole bunch of the Levites said, we're for you. And they executed more than 3,000 wicked Israelites in that day. Sometimes God executes wrath through human ministers. But sometimes an angel of death comes through a camp. No human lifted a sword against the 185,000 Assyrians that fell outside of Jerusalem when Sennacherib tried to prevail against that small, small comparatively. 20,000 people, men, women, and children in the city, 185,000 of the world's greatest warriors camped on the hills. What are the odds? And yet they awoke in the morning and they were, the 185,000 were dead and were told that it was an, there was an angel of the Lord that did it, that brought their death. <clears throat> Ministers who do his will. Are they not all ministering servants <laughs> sent forth for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Angels are fearsome things. Beautiful, sinless, holy, mighty, not limited in the ways that we are. Probably not cute. Probably not cute. I think it's the wrong word. Wrong word. I mean, that's how it is in kitschy, you know, chubby, chubby cherub, angelic art. But put all the greeting card angels aside. Um, they're often, they often appear um, to judge with swords drawn. They're, they're valiant warriors, the angels. They're jealous guardians. They're swift servants. They're an army, not a nursery. Hosts, they're called. To the extraordinary ministry of angels... We can also, we just simply want to say that God's use of angels is not because God lacks the power himself. It's not that God has lots of good plans, but he really needs some help. And so he enlists an army to help him. God could do with or without the means, but that he confers dignity on these creatures and presses them into the service of his redemptive purposes. Saints, he does the same for us. When he... When he calls you by his grace, when he gives you a word of peace and reconciliation to proclaim to your neighbor and to the nations, he, is con he doesn't need you, but he confers dignity upon you by giving you a, a part to play by his good purpose in the advancement of his glory. To the extraordinary ministry of angels, we can also add the ordinary ministry of angels. Their primary service is to give continuous praise to God. Their primary objective is, worship, is to be worshipers, and their proper habitation is heaven. Part of the ministry includes not simply, though, the worship of God, but the worship of God even with regard to what he does in salvation. We're told in Luke 15 that when a sinner repents, that heaven rejoices. I think we are to see the holy angels as rejoicing over the repentance of a sinner. We're told that they watch over believers. In fact, Psalm 91 is a, is a really potent passage in this connection. Psalm 91, verses, uh, verse 11 says, 
For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Now, just so we're clear, that's not just Old Testament. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? That goes on as an, as an ordinary ministry of angels in the new covenant as well. To guard you in all your ways, they will bear you up in their hands that you not strike your foot against a stone. The Lord keeps you. But the Lord deploys means to keep you. Sometimes he deploys humans. You know, a phone call from a friend who offers you consolation when you were disconsolate. Someone who offers you a word of rebuke when you were tempted to sin or have been ensnared in a sin. The Lord sends those who provide for us in terms of our material needs a meal when we are in a hard way. Um, in perhaps different ways, angels are also sent forth. For our aid, not perceptible to our senses, not known to us in terms of a sense experience. I, I don't lay a lot of store in those the, the angel hitchhiker stories. I picked up this hitchhiker and he said something to me. My heart was strangely warmed, and I never saw him again. And you know, it's like he's it's like he's Melchizedek, having neither father nor mother. <laughs> you know, um, nevertheless. Uh, you should show hospitality because in old times, people thereby entertained angels unawares. I'm not ruling in principle. I'm not ruling out in principle that you might entertain angels. I just want to emphasize unawares so that we don't get into a kind of, you know, was it an angel or wasn't an angel and getting all worked up? I don't think scripture calls us to get exercised about that question, but simply to be aware that the angels are among us. Maybe as we come to, a, come to our closing minutes, I should just simply emphasize this, that the angels also have a role to play even here with us now. Are there angels in this place right now? I think the safest assumption is to say yes, that there is a sense in which the angels who guard and watch over God's people also take a peculiar light, a delight in the assembling and the gathering of God's people. In fact, we're told that we're to be conscientious of this. That we're to be aware of this. There's an instruction that is sometimes baffling to people in 1 Corinthians 11, where the apostle Paul says that women are to have a sign of authority on their head. And I'll, I'll leave that to you and your own elders to decide exactly whether the hair is the covering or, you know, uh, or whether it's something over and above the hair. And I'll, I'll leave that to the nice exegesis of New Testament scholars. But there is something in which a woman is not to usurp the authority of her husband and then he says, and she is supposed to, in fact, in the way that she deports herself in the assembly, uh, she is supposed to deport herself in an orderly way. And we're told that she's to do so for the sake of the angels. So I guess what I want to say is when we come to worship, there's something about our, and this isn't just women and what they wear on their heads or what covers their head. But I think by extension, there's something about our deportment in worship that the angels care about. That we're to be mindful of their presence, that they rejoice over our salvation and they attend to our worship because they themselves delight in the gathering of God's people who join together to praise his name. After all, that's what they do. That's what they do. They attend our worship. We're to be mindful of them even as we gather. There's, there's a great um, history in Christian hymnody of invoking angels. I, I won't turn to the text now, but there are times in the Old Testament where psalmists actually exhort angels. 
All ye angels, and then sometimes the, the psalm just exhorts angels. We have this in our own English hymnody. Angels help us to adore him. Ye behold him face to face. Sun and moon bow down before him, fillers all of time and space. That the angels are engaged in worship. We are now coming together this morning to engage in worship, but we're joining a congregation that is already gathered. We need to make sure that we are, as it were, keeping, keeping faith with them um, by ordering our worship in a way that glorifies God and does not disrupt the order of things um, or detract from God's glory. You asked about questions, but I think I'm going to leave it there. Just as a kind of broad survey of, I just wanted to, if I could do anything, plant the seed that the angels are at work, the angels are among us, they are here not only to glorify God, but also to help us in this pilgrimage as we also seek to glorify God. John Owen says this, I'll read this and then close us in prayer for this time. Glorify and praise him who is God of all angels who sends them, who employs them, unto whom they minister in all that they do for us. Let us bless God, I say, for the ministry of angels. Let's do that.